This morning is a Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. And if you grew up around the church like I did in Sunday school, um, for me this was like the day where the kids came and ran upstairs with palm branches through the aisles, right? This was like Sunday school stories coming to life on Palm Sunday. But this morning I want us to kind of dive into the Palm Sunday story a little bit as we begin our time together. But it's, it's a little bit deeper than maybe our Sunday school interactions with it. It's a lot more than waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. Palm Sunday represents a, a day in the life of Jesus about a week before he was crucified, where he and his disciples enter the city of Jerusalem. He enters on the back of a donkey, and people welcome him into the city as if they're welcoming a king. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wave palm branches. They lay their cloaks out on the road before him. And that's maybe the picture that you're familiar with, with if you know the story. But, but what is it that the people are thinking as they're doing that? What is this that they're saying about this king who's coming in the name of the Lord? As we dive in to this morning, we, the, the morning of, of this triumphal entry, we call it. The tensions were high. Jesus was coming as Passover, that kind of season was, was taking place in Jerusalem. The, the city would, would balloon in size in terms of the people that were there because people were coming from all over to celebrate this feast. And what that meant was chaos. Jerusalem became a powder keg that the Romans who were ruling over them were fearful of. See, the Jews didn't like the fact that Rome was in control, that they were the, the, the ones in charge, they were the ones who were able to, to set the laws and the, the, the rule over the land, and it was the desire of the people to rise up and overthrow Rome. There was a group called the Zealots who they were kind of this secretive group of assassins whose, whose desire was to kind of take out head targets in order to kind of have a rising up among the people in Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and establish the kingdom of Israel. As Jesus is entering the streets of Jerusalem on the donkey, as the people are shouting Hosanna, no doubt there's many who are thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this Messiah is the one who's going to raise up the militia, this group of assassins who's going to take out the Romans and establish the kingdom in Jerusalem. No doubt the Romans, seeing the popularity of Jesus and the crowds that were gathered around him, knowing this was a tense time anyway around Passover, they're sending in reinforcements into Jerusalem. Not only is it just ballooning in size because of Jewish pilgrims from across the land coming to Jerusalem, it's ballooning in size because there's an increased guard. The Romans sent in reinforcements. They knew this was tense times, and if there was any uprising, they wanted to stomp it out quickly. Tensions were high as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. In my study this week, I even discovered that the palm branches that were waved around, they're not just like a happy, like, we're, get, we're fanning the king. You know, that was my thought always, you know, like the big palm branches and make him feel comfortable. No, the waving of palm branches for the Jewish people 
tied in for them in an event that happened between our Old and New Testament. Where a, a group of, of, uh, of, of Jewish militia rose up. They were called the Maccabees. And they overthrew the Greeks that were conquering the land at the time, and they established their kingdom. They were violent. They were hardcore in their beliefs. If you weren't pure enough in your walk of faith and in, the way, in your expression of Judaism, you were killed off too. But this kind of militia group, this desire to have a violent revolution to overthrow the conquering powers, that was symbolized by the palm branch. In fact, once this militia took over and established their kingdom, when they minted their coins, it was palm branches that was on the coin as a symbol of this revolution. I remember when I was in Nicaragua a few years ago, I noticed that on the, on the Nicaraguan flag and the flag of many Central American countries that had had uh, uh, socialist revolutions, their flags had a red hat on it. And this red hat was a symbol of the people have risen up and overthrown the dictators that had been over them. The palm branch was that symbol. As Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, the question is, is this the guy who's going to overthrow Rome? And Rome is wondering, how quickly are we going to have to stomp this This week we're going to be continuing in our atonement series and we're going to be looking at Jesus' cross through the lens of victory. Now, we've been talking about the cross in a whole bunch of different ways. We talked about it in, in, in terms of sacrifice, looking at the Old Testament sacrificial system. We looked at it through the lens of exile, of how God's people had been sent out of the land and we have been sent out of God's presence and Jesus' death brings us back. We looked at Jesus' death as the ransom. It pays the price to set slaves free. And last week, we talked about the reality that Christ's death on the cross, he died in our place. This week, we're going to be looking at the cross through the lens of a victory. Now, with all these different ways of talking about the cross, I don't want us to get confused and say, well, are you just telling us a bunch of different perspectives and we have to choose one or, or something like that, these don't, these don't fundamentally conflict with each other. In fact, one of the ways that we've been talking about these perspectives of the atonement, of how Jesus makes us and God at one with each other, is with the analogy of a diamond, of how a good diamond has 58 facets, 58 cuts along the sides of it. 58 different ways you can look at it. And the fact that it has all of these facets, all these ways you can look at the diamond, actually brings more light into the stone and makes it shine brilliantly. Where it's not going to shine as bright if, you're only, it's, if it's only cut like a cube. To have these different perspectives shows the brilliance of what it is. I've talked about the atonement kind of like having a, a, a golf bag full of golf clubs when you're going golfing. Like if you're doing your whole round with just your putter, like you're not going to do well off the tee. Or we've talked about it like a, a color wheel. Like if we're looking at the cross only from one perspective, it's like we're only seeing one color. We don't see the full spectrum of what's going on. And sometimes they all bleed together, which makes it a bit confusing for us. But this week as we talk about Jesus' death on the cross 
as victory. This is what we mean. That Jesus conquered the powers of darkness through His death on the cross. That Jesus conquered the powers of darkness through His death on the cross. Now, maybe your question that you are asking right now is what are these powers? What are these powers of darkness? And, and as we dive into this, I need us to remind ourselves that the Christian faith is a supernatural worldview. That not everything that exists is something that can be touched and seen and measured. There is more than just what is seen and heard and felt. We believe that there are things at work, that there is power and and, uh, a reality that exists beyond what is visible. And we need to also remember that our default as 21st century kind of like post-enlightenment thinkers is to think when we read the Bible like we're 21st century people. And not to think in the way that the ancient Jewish people or the first century readers of the Gospels and the letters of Paul would have read it. To see the world as this enchanted world that it was. To acknowledge that there are powers and things that work behind the scenes that we aren't going to recognize naturally on our own. So when we talk about these powers in Scripture, the the perspective of of the biblical writers is that the different areas where we see power at work in the world, whether that's through empires and governments or the laws and those who make them, whether it's in group behavior or in the systems that exist in our world, that there is actually kind of a behind-the-scenes power that is at work through them. If you read the Old Testament, the perspective of what Egypt and Babylon and the Persians and these other empires are, is more than just this is a political entity that exists in time and space, but that there is some kind of dark supernatural force at work behind it. We see it in uh, a modern example when we talk about group behavior. The way that you and I would act in like a mob setting is different than how you and I would rationally act on our own. And we see this way of how we're influenced by a crowd. Or or, or social media is a perfect example of it, where the comment section is the pinnacle of human depravity. (laughs) Like, there's a way that we behave online that we're influenced by the medium, and we actually influence the medium in ways that are beyond our natural way of acting. We're being acted on and influenced And the biblical writers, and I would say that there are some kind of supernatural powers at work behind some of these things. When we talk about systems, whether that is like the economic systems that that our our world runs on, or even just the, the political and social systems around us. Like as Christians, we of all people would actually have a category for talking about systematic racism and injustice because we believe that there are actually spiritual forces and beings at work behind the systems we see in our world. This is how the writers of the Bible talk about reality. And so Jesus, in the cross, 
is confronting the powers that hold sway over humanity. Whether it's the power of Rome that was seen as the pagan power over Israel, whether it is the dark spiritual forces of sin and death and Satan and his whole crew, that Jesus is confronting them and defeating them on the cross. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Let's dive into what the Bible actually says about this. Let let me give you an example of how this, this is just a natural part of the worldview, okay? In Colossians 1, Paul writes this beautiful statement of, of like, this is who Jesus is, right? And he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That these powers that are at work, they're not equal to God. Like, Jesus isn't like squaring off with like an equal party. But there were things that were initially created by God and subservient to God. And not all these powers and rulers and authorities are evil. We look at Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks like this. He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So what Paul is saying here is that some of these powers have set themselves up against the rule of God. And their kind of playground has been this this creation and this place where humanity has fallen away from God and they're at work within the systems and power structures of humanity. And third, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that humans are ultimately held under the sway of these powers. When he says, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is, this is a, a, a term for Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The perspective that we have here is that, that there are spiritual forces at work, dark spiritual forces at work in the world, not just through like This is a group that is openly satanic and Satan is using them. But even in the structures that we've come to know and trust, there are ways where dark spiritual forces use that to to hold sway over humanity in the world. They hold us captive, but we either don't realize it or we don't see the need for anything else. Let me give you... I don't know if this is like an analogy or like an example of it. But I I discovered this week that 83% of Russians support Vladimir Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. 83%. That is a 20-point jump from where he was last year. Now, there is a reality of living as a Russian content under the reign of Putin that I don't understand. 
whether that's through disinformation, whether it's just through the cultural influence, whether it is, it is a blindness to not see the atrocities that are going on, that this is a system where there is a sway and I would argue a dark power behind it that is greater than just, oh, this is my political affiliation. When we see these grand moves of darkness in our world, it's probably clear for us to say there is power at work behind that beyond what we can understand. Humanity is held under sway of these dark spiritual powers and Christ has come to conquer these powers and liberate us while taking his proper place as king. This is what we mean when we talk about the cross as victory. So, how did Jesus conquer these powers? How did Jesus conquer on the cross? Well, let's think back to Palm Sunday. Think back to Jesus of Nazareth coming in and being received as the Messiah who would overthrow Rome. But he wasn't the only person at the time, in, in the first century, who, who was claiming to be the Messiah. There were others who rose up groups and they were stomped out pretty quick by Rome. There were others who were crucified for the same thing. Was Jesus just another wannabe Messiah who ended up being stomped out quickly by the Romans through his crucifixion? This guy who claimed he would raise up the the militia and assassins to do the work? No doubt, there were some mothers of disciples who thought so. Like, can you imagine, like, I'm just, Thaddeus' mom? No one ever talks about Thaddeus. Poor guy. Can you imagine his mom sitting at home up in Galilee and being like, there he goes following that rabbi. Now they claim he's the Messiah. We know that's not going to end well if he's going into Jerusalem at Passover. And they hear the news of the crucifixion. It's funny, Faith, I know. (laughs) And they hear the news of the crucifixion, and no doubt there's a sense of like, I probably could have told him so. Like, you're not going to win against Rome. There have been others who tried. They just end up being conquered. Jesus was just another wannabe messiah. But actually what the early Christians believed and what has been passed down through the Christian tradition is that Jesus conquered the powers not by killing, but by dying. It's in what looks like being conquered that Jesus actually wins victory over these powers. Let me read to you again from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul says this in Colossians 2, He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and, con- and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. That Jesus made a public spectacle of the powers by triumphing over them on the cross. How is Jesus' death a triumph? How is Jesus' death a humiliation to Rome and to the powers of darkness and to Satan? 
Well, we read that our sin is forgiven. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. Satan literally means the accuser. And what he holds against us is the power of death in saying that you are accused because of your sin. You are unworthy and you are, you are, are destined for wrath and condemnation and death. Jesus forgave and covered over our sins. So there is nothing for the power of Satan to hold over us. He can't accuse us anymore. He's got no weapons to throw against us. Jesus conquered death by facing death head on, by taking its worst upon himself. I don't know if there's a more brutal way of dying than crucifixion. It's literally where we get the word excruciating. He took death on himself and he came out the other side. He defeated death in a way that that now death and the fear of death, which held sway over us, really isn't a thing for us who in the Messiah have the hope of resurrection. Jesus showed that Rome's bark is worse than its bite by taking the fullness of Roman torture and crucifixion on himself. And in the process said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Crucifixion didn't do to Jesus what they hoped it would in breaking his spirit. The power, what power does Rome or the corrupt courts or the religious institutions or Satan hold over Jesus? who embraced the cross and rose victoriously three days later. And in this, this is cool for me, in his crucifixion, he actually showed himself to be the true king, showed himself to be the truest power. Let me read to you um, the story of Jesus' crucifixion from Mark chapter 15. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him in the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off his purple robe and put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. See, Jesus' disciples, they didn't see Jesus' crucifixion ultimately as a humiliation, as a humiliating thing. In fact, the way that it's written about in the Gospels is framing it as this upside-down coronation of a king. Little did the Roman soldiers know as they knelt down and mockingly worshipped Jesus as king of the Jews that actually through this humiliating death he was conquering the power of Rome and of Satan and was showing himself as the true king. As they mocked him with a crown of thorns, little did they know that he would be elevated to the name above all names and be crowned and seated on the thrones of heaven. When Jesus looked the weakest and most helpless, 
was when he was most profoundly displaying his strength. Jesus' way of conquering evil was with sacrificial, nonviolent, self-giving love. And that is how we conquer evil too. Let me read to you these words of uh, N.T. Wright. He wrote a phenomenal, really thick book uh, a couple decades ago called Jesus and the Victory of God. And in it, he says this, Jesus denounced those who, com- who compromised with Caesar by thinking to defeat him by his own weapons. Fighting the battle with the enemy's weapons meant that one had already lost in principle and would soon lose it and lose it terribly in practice. Jesus' way of conquering the power of Rome and of Satan isn't by pulling swords. In fact, he told Peter to put his away because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus' way wasn't in rising up a zealous crew of of Jewish militia to, to kill every Roman soldier in Jerusalem during Passover. He chose the way of the cross. And so our way of fighting the powers of evil is not to fight fire with fire, but to fight the way that Jesus did. We don't play by the enemy's rule book, by by fighting violence with violence, or disinformation with disinformation, or hatred with hatred. Jesus told us to to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us. We show that the powers are disarmed when we take the way of the cross rather than the way of retaliation. And let's not pretend that the church has been squeaky clean about this in her history. In the moments when the church has taken up the weapons of empire and have tried to show its power by using the power of the world. We've actually forfeited the victory of Christ and we've submitted ourselves as a tool to be used by the dark powers. It's by taking the way of the cross that the victory of Christ is won and displayed. Not through holy wars or crusades or inquisition or the history of colonialism that the church uh, is full of. So how do we share in Jesus' victory? First of all, it's it's by uniting with Christ by faith. Jesus' victory is our victory when he's our king. And so 1 John, John, Jesus' disciple, writes this in his letter. He says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's in in choosing to follow Christ and making him our king and following him by faith that the victory of Christ is our victory. We share in Jesus' victory by living the way of the cross, not the way of the world. Let's flip to the the back of the book, in in the book of Revelation, where there's this this chapter that talks about Satan being thrown down and, and conquered. And there's an angel who, who says this very poetically about the martyrs, those who 
have conquered Satan. It says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That the way of following the Lamb and not the beast, if you want to get into the language of Revelation, is not loving their lives so much as to shrink from death. That we don't need to fear death. We walk the way of the cross, not the way of the world. And that's going to mean that there are times where we, we embrace the victory of Christ knowing that he has defeated the powers. And there are going to be times where we're called to step up within the systems that the powers are at work in in the world and through the word of our testimony, so to speak, speak the kingdom of God into those spaces. Whether that's in the, the, the governmental institutions that we're part of. We don't just flee and say, oh, that's up to the powers. But maybe as those who are victorious in Christ, we step into those spaces to show the light of the kingdom. We share Jesus' victory by knowing that we're his. Let me read to you uh, the final verses in Paul's beautiful Romans chapter 8. He says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height or death or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, it's the words that we sing in Christ alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. That there is no dark power at work behind the systems of the world that is going to pull us away from Christ. There will be times, however, where we're tempted to live under its influence. There are going to be times where it's easy for us to be caught up in the mob mentality. Easy for us to descend into the depravity of the, of the comment section. But we know that there is powers at work that have been defeated. And that though they have no grip over us, we need to be mindful of their influence in the world. We don't need to fear them because we stand in victory, but we need to be aware that there are, there are things at work. Ultimately knowing that Jesus has defeated them on the cross and one day every power will be humiliated and destroyed and thrown down at his return. I don't have this up on a slide, but I'm just going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, Then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the power of the evil one. We don't need to uh, be afraid that we're going to be held into the grips of the influences that once ruled over us. Because there is a king on the throne in heaven whose kinger, king, kingdom is stronger. Kingdom is stronger than the Russian military. His kingdom is stronger than the wealth of Wall Street. His kingdom 
is stronger than the influence of social media? That He is the true King even when the powers of darkness in this world try to claim ownership. And we get to share in that kingdom victory here and now as we follow the way of its crucified and risen King. Let's pray. Jesus, You are victorious. That on the cross in Your death which looked like defeat, You showed us the true victory that You won. A victory that was ratified three days later when You were risen from the dead. When the good news that death is defeated, that the power of Satan has no teeth on us, when that becomes realized. And God, my prayer this morning for us as we wrestle through kind of a strange way of seeing the world, that, that you, would, you would free us from the grip of the powers because you died to defeat them on the cross. That we wouldn't live in fear knowing that death is defeated, knowing that your kingdom is coming, and that we would, we would be able to live in the fullness of the life that you've given us with you as our king. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.